The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On a fall evening in 1982, as residents of Newport News, Virginia, lay peacefully asleep in their beds, a vicious predator silently crept the dark and quiet streets, preparing to attack. The stalker had already spent time scoping out his prey and had his sights set on one unsuspecting family in particular. They had no idea when they went to bed that evening, the horror that would awake them in the dead of night. Join me now as we take a look into a brutal crime that terrorized an innocent family and would lead local police into a tailspin. You'll hear how detectives' desperation to catch a menacing killer would ultimately lead to questionable investigation tactics and a suspicious conviction. The fall season in Newport News, Virginia, resembles a scene straight out of a classic painting, with radiant shades of red, brown, and yellow dotting the trees that line the cheerful roads and picturesque landscape. Known as a beautiful coastal town, Newport News is loaded with an extensive shipping history dating back to America's founding. However, not all of Newport News' history is favorable. This relatively small town, nestled on the James River's northern shore, has a reputation for its high crime rate, most involving burglary occurring in the East End, near the Newport News shipbuilding. With its ties to the military and boating industry, this community was also home to many young families, including the Perrins. 30-year-old Jesse Perrin and his wife Teresa were among those families their home was located close to the harbor, where Jesse worked as a shipyard welder. Teresa was a stay-at-home mom, looking after their home and three children. The pair lived a relatively quiet existence, with their home located on Warwick Boulevard, not too far from the docks where Jesse worked. Tragically for this loving family, everything was about to change. Early on the morning of September 14, 1982, Teresa awakened to a sudden and startling noise. When she opened her eyes, she witnessed her husband being beaten with a crowbar. When the intruder realized Teresa was awake, he grabbed her and threw her off the bed, pinning her down with his legs as he continued to attack her husband. Jesse was badly injured and soon fell unconscious. Once the intruder was finished with Jesse, he turned his attention to Teresa. Dressed in a navy uniform, the strange man told her he only wanted to knock Jesse out. He revealed he knew their children were there and threatened to harm them if Teresa didn't cooperate. Desperate to protect her children, Teresa fought hard to stay quiet as the attacker spent the next several hours viciously assaulting her. When the attack finally came to an end, the man fled from the parents' home, and Teresa immediately checked on her husband. To her horror and absolute despair, Jesse was dead. Clenched tightly in his hands were dozens of strands of hair. Teresa instantly called police, alerting them to the nightmare she just endured. When officers and EMTs arrived on the scene, they confirmed Jesse was deceased and rushed Teresa and her children to the hospital. As police inspected the crime scene, they found several discarded cigarette butts lying around the bedroom. They also collected hair samples Jesse had managed to rip out before he was murdered. A soft drink was also found presumably handled by the attacker, as well as the crowbar he had left behind. At Riverside Hospital, 
Teresa was examined and assigned a physical evidence recovery kit. The attacker had inflicted deep bite marks on both her legs, which were photographed and cataloged. Swaps were also taken from Teresa, as well as hair and other evidence. These were all saved in the kit for future investigation. Once the evidence was collected and Teresa had somewhat recovered, police began to question her about the attack. Still in shock and mournful over the loss of her husband, Teresa lamented she couldn't identify her attacker. It was nobody she knew, but something was disturbing Teresa. She told police she'd remembered seeing a man earlier the previous day, wearing a naval uniform pacing up and down her street. She also said that when she'd taken her children swimming that day, they were sworn at by the same man wearing the naval uniform who was hitchhiking alongside the road. Teresa recalled scant details of her attacker's face during the long hours of brutality she suffered. A man with a leaner build, balding, clean-shaven, wearing a white naval uniform. His uniform also had an insignia with three nested Vs. It was a small amount of information, but it was all police had to go on. Around the same time they were beginning their search for the murderer, local reporters caught wind of the attack and started spreading news of the harrowing story. It wasn't long before the community had all been made aware of a night stalker creeping among their midst. When the chilling details of the story broke, a security guard named Donald L. Wade came forward. He worked the graveyard shift at the local shipyard and on the night of the invasion told police he'd witnessed a few officers returning back to the naval vessel docked in the harbor, the USS Carl Vinson. Of those men, Donald noted one appeared to have blood on his uniform. He also recalled his mannerisms being out of the ordinary. His attire brought further attention to him as it was improper for a station. Not only was his hat missing, his sleeves were also rolled up. Donald pointed out that his uniform's insignia indicated the sailor was an E3-ranked officer. Donald was also stationed at Gate 50, which police soon realized was located close to the parents' home. Soon after, a tracking dog was brought in by police. The hound followed the scent trail of the attacker from the parents' home all the way up to Gate 50, where Donald had seen the bloodstained man entering the shipyard around 2.30 in the morning. Teresa and Donald were later placed under hypnosis and asked to describe the incidents they'd witnessed. Strangely, under hypnosis, Donald's time frame of seeing the bloodstained naval officer suddenly changed from 2.30 a.m. to 5 a.m., matching the time frame Teresa indicated the man had fled from her home. Teresa also revealed the voice of her attacker matched that of the hitchhiker who had sworn at her, wearing a navy uniform bringing up again the three upside-down V insignia. Police now had a reasonably clear lead on where to begin their investigation and felt the press's mounting pressure to find the menacing attacker. While the investigation ensued, the Carl Vincent continued to be docked at the shipyard while undergoing construction. During that time, the bite marks on Teresa's legs had become a key piece of evidence in the investigation. Donald's description of an E3 rank officer was also taken into account and matching personnel were called in. Of the roughly 1,300 men working on the Carl Vincent, a few hundred had impressions made of their teeth. After the impressions were made, a few men were identified as possible matches. The first was a man named Arthur Koch, an 18-year-old sailor stationed on the Carl Vincent. According to records, Arthur had shown up late to work on the ship the day following the murder, and his superiors had mentioned his uniform had been lost several weeks prior. Despite not matching up with Donald's account of a bloodied white uniformed man, Arthur unknowingly became the focal point for detectives. Following his interview, Arthur paid a visit to his family in Alpena, Michigan, only to be suddenly surprised when detectives showed up at his family's home to arrest him. In their minds, he was a fugitive attempting to flee. When he was read the charges against him, Arthur didn't react hostile, further arousing police suspicions. He claimed it was because he was innocent. 
After a warrant was issued, Arthur was forced to give a dental impression so they could compare it to the bite marks found on Teresa. Arthur knew whatever came back wouldn't implicate him. He would later describe detectives as determined to get a conviction and that facts and evidence didn't seem to matter. But as Arthur grew unsure of his fate, a few days later, the charges were suddenly dropped and he was released. The reason for Arthur's sudden turn of fate? Another suspect had taken detectives' focus, Keith Harward, an unassuming young man who lived in Norfolk, Virginia. Born in Greensboro, North Carolina, Keith was the youngest in the family of three older brothers, and his parents, Charles and Mildred, had always worked hard to provide for their boys. My father was a body man, ran a body shop, and my mother was a nurse for a while, so she raised a family. We moved from the city out to a place out in the country that was like a housing development neighborhood type thing. It was based on the lake. I was in the country, so I rode the school bus to the county schools. While I was in school, I started going to school half a day and working a half a day. It's kind of an outlet for somebody. If you were going to be a laborer, if you were going to be a plumber or mechanic, that was offered up. So, you know, I was out doing that when I was 16. His parents were loving and supportive, working hard to make sure their children grew up healthy and well-mannered. My father was somewhat strict. I mean, you get haircuts and you mow the yard and put the tools away and, you know, you be respectful and yes ma'am, no ma'am, that type of thing. Uh, Southern upbringing of that time, you know, you learn to respect people, you know, everybody, regardless of who they are. But Keith had a rambunctious spirit that carried him well into his young adult life. By the time he was 24, he'd already been married, divorced, and enlisted in the Navy by January of 1980. We got married. We had a, a rocky relationship due to me. I was not prepared to be an adult at age 18, like a lot of people aren't prepared to be an adult, you know, to have a family and all that stuff. But I also had a drinking problem, and I messed around with some drugs and stuff. Nothing hardcore, but steal what people consider bad stuff, you know, pot and things like that. And, and of course, it, we were young. I shouldn't have been married. You know, it was just, it was a bad situation is what it was. And so we got divorced a couple years later. Seeking direction and wanting to become a better and more stable man, like how his parents had brought him up to be, Keith sought the strict regimen of the military, hoping to turn his life around and truly make something of himself. I was tired of being tired and tired of waking up, still being half messed up and going to work and not being able to go to work and stuff. And the only thing, my rational idea was to say, okay, the only way I can do this is to leave. So I went to the post office and the first door I went into was the Navy door. I said, I want to sign up. I want to go get me out of here. And that's what I did. He gained purpose while stationed on the Carl Vinson and after two years of service, became a well-respected tailor and dry cleaner. He'd also developed a new relationship with a woman named Gladys, with whom he shared a home with in Norfolk. Life was looking pretty decent for Keith, but there were still a few demons that needed to be dealt with. Keith had an appreciation for marijuana and alcohol, continuously causing him to fail urine screenings. He was also forced to attend mandatory drug and alcohol meetings. In March of 1983, Keith was prohibited from shipping out when the Carl Vinson left its moorings. Around the same time, he got into an argument with Gladys, who also struggled with alcohol. While I was at Newport News, I met this woman at the bar and we started a relationship and we lived together. We had an apartment. It was kind of like, you know, as long as I paid the bills and groceries and stuff, she would stay with me as, you know, as a girlfriend or whatever kind of thing. So she took care of the, you know, the apartment and the groceries and cooking and things like that. And I had a place I could go and stay. I didn't have to stay on the ship. So it was kind of convenient. But the problem was she also was an alcoholic. Alcohol would often turn their minor arguments into ugly altercations. On one evening, it became physical, ending with Gladys at the hospital, claiming Keith had bitten her on the shoulder. 
When police came knocking on his door, Keith claimed the bite had been in self-defense. He told police he and his girlfriend had been drinking heavily that night and weren't in their right minds. Eventually, the charges were dropped and Keith moved out to live with his parents. His parents, Charles and Mildred, had retired onto a 70-acre plot of land out in Floyd County, North Carolina. It was the perfect place for him to stay while he figured his life out. Unfortunately, things were about to get much more complicated and uncertain than he ever imagined. Little did Keith realize, the brief court hearing involving Gladys had caught the attention of police working on the Perrin case. Right around the same time, they'd arrested Arthur Koch. Following the final hearing, Keith was suddenly approached by a detective. They heard about the assault charge against him that involved the bite mark. Unbeknownst to Keith, detectives had brought Teresa Perrin into the courtroom during his hearing to listen to him speak. They hoped Teresa would identify Keith as her attacker, but Teresa said she didn't recognize his face or his voice. Detectives brushed it off as a memory lapse and asked Keith to agree to a dental exam. Still uncertain about why he was being targeted, Keith agreed to have impressions made of his teeth. When Keith had still been stationed on the Carl Vincent, he and many of his shipmates already had dental exams. His first results had come back clear, and he was dismissed without incident. They had dentists come on board the ship, and they run everybody through that was E1 to E3, run everybody through, and looked in their mouth because they were looking for a certain kind of identification with teeth. You know, if you're missing a tooth, you're missing a tooth. He hadn't paid much attention to it back then, nor did he fully understand what the exams were for. Irritated, he was being put through yet another dental exam. Keith agreed regardless, knowing he was innocent of whatever they assumed he was guilty of. After his exam was finished, Keith returned home with his parents, certain nothing would amount from it. But on May 16, 1983, a short time following his impressions, police arrived back on his parents' doorstep, declaring Keith was under arrest. They came up after dark, knocked on the door. We were sitting there watching television. That's when they asked me to step out. You're under arrest. Put the handcuffs on me. Then the highway patrol car showed up. Sheriff's car showed up. The ambulance showed up. I guess they thought we were going to have a shootout or something. I don't know. It was, it was surreal. You have to be aware of my parents' house. It's a little old house built in the 1800s in the mountains. And driveways probably a half a mile long, if not three quarters, and it's kind of through the woods. So you don't see anybody coming until they kind of come to the house. And my mother, she just fell apart. You know, that's when all these other vehicles that were down the driveway with lights off, quiet, hidden, they roll up. And then, of course, the, the EMTs helped her out and all that kind of stuff, gave her a, a sedative. And, and they whisked me off to the Lloyd County Courthouse to put me in the uh, jail overnight. Though anxious, Keith reassured his parents everything would be fine as he went with the officers to the station. After arriving, he was ordered to undergo an additional impression. Keith finally learned why he was being detained. He was being accused of Jesse Perrin's murder from September of the previous year and the violent assault on Teresa. The cheesy detectives are going to be talking to you, you know, trying to ask you questions, find out. And I keep telling them, I, I don't know what the hell y'all talking about. You know, I got no clue. You know, they tell me, well, we got fingerprints. We got blood type. We got this. We got that. We got our wit. You know, and you know, okay, talk to us and we'll see what we can do. You know, I, I ain't got to repeat. You, you see it enough on television. And that does happen. Terrified and insisting he was innocent. Keith struggled to convince detectives he wasn't the man they were looking for. On the night of the attack, he'd actually been attending one of his mandatory drug and alcohol meetings. A solid alibi, or so he thought. Well, I was in a drug alcohol class in Norfolk, Virginia, which was 10, 15 miles away. But because I left that afternoon, that evening at 8 o'clock, and went back to Newport News is where I lived, 
because I had an apartment there with Gladys. So for me to be in the on the sidewalk or, or peeking over the fence, I couldn't have done it. I was in another town. But they claim, well, maybe it was somebody else. It wasn't me. It was two different people. They found out a way to explain to her that the woman that testified, who was my drug and alcohol counselor at the Navy base, she came with her records with, you know, where I signed in and signed out, you know, for the class. She came and testified, said, hey, you know, he was here. But see, the crime happened later that night. So, you know, I could have went back and did all this other stuff. But the fact of, you know, standing around her house, watching the husband do this, and her hang up close, it was impossible. I was in Norfolk. I was in another town, okay, when all that was going on. When this dude was creeping around, when, but we can't prove it. You know, he can't admit to it. We can't prove it. During those days, the leading expert on dental forensics was Lowell Levine, considered a rising star in the world of incriminating bite marks. His examinations had earned him a valuable track record. After using dental forensics to identify the infamous serial killer, Ted Bundy, his expertise had also aided with the discovery of Joseph Mengele's remains, a merciless Nazi war criminal. Levine had been brought in to examine Keith's impressions, and because of his credentials, anyone involved in the case was already predisposed to believe whatever conclusions he came to. The case's prominent focus became the bite marks, leading to the case to be known as the Bite Mark Case of Newport News. In October of 1983, Levine took the stand, testifying against any shadow of a doubt that the bite mark evidence on Teresa matched those of Keith's teeth perfectly. In absolute disbelief, Keith could do nothing but sit silently and listen to the case. Detectives worked so hard to stack high against him. They wanted little more than a conviction for capital murder. I couldn't react to stuff because I was afraid that if I reacted, maybe one of the jurors might think, oh yeah, he did do it. You know, uh, you hear that all the time. People say, he had no reaction. Well, well, you know, you could you could act like you're pissed off or something like that, but that ain't doing no good. And and people gonna think you're crazy or something, or you know, you're protesting too much. I just don't know. I I was just thinking, okay, it, they'll figure it out. It's going to happen. But salvation didn't come through for Keith. Instead, the case dragged on, and when the trial finally came to an end, the question of his innocence never emerged. Terrified and desperate, Keith's parents stood up and begged the jury to spare their son's life from the death penalty. It was the first time Keith had ever witnessed his father cry. Finally, the jury returned after a long deliberation with their final verdict. Keith was sentenced to life on charges of burglary, rape, and murder. The bite mark evidence, combined with Donald Wade's testimony that Keith was the bloodstained man he saw that night made sure Keith would go to prison. Except they had the wrong man. Keith knew he was innocent, but it was his word against a leading expert in dental forensics. Even back then, when dental forensics were regarded as a credible incrimination method, Keith knew they were flawed, based only on the knowledge he'd never even met Teresa, never mind bitten her. His lawyer Roy Lazarus agreed and filed an appeal for a new trial. Several months later, a new trial was granted, and Keith's lawyer continued to try to paint his client's innocence to the jury. He brought up Keith's alibi of the addiction meeting again, along with the fact Teresa had described her attacker as a clean-shaven man. But Keith had a mustache at the time, and through her own admission, Teresa hadn't recognized Keith or his voice. But all available evidence proving Keith's innocence fell on deaf ears. For a second time, Lowell Levine was called to the stand to defend his findings. Even as it became clear to Keith's lawyer that some of the jury members appeared doubtful, calling for life imprisonment over the death penalty, Levine stood his ground. He backed his findings wholeheartedly, stating, 
it was a very, 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 very high degree of probability that Harward's teeth made the bite marks on Teresa's body. Levine said the word very four times. He claimed it was practically impossible someone else could have all the characteristics he discovered while examining the impressions. By that point, Keith's lawyer was sure he was missing crucial evidence to prove his client's innocence. Meanwhile, as the jury deliberated again, Keith sat in silence, forlorn, hopeless and resigned to never regaining his freedom. Sure enough, his appeal failed and he was once again sentenced to life in prison. Keith was now bound to a cell, haunted by his experience in the judicial system. He'd built his hopes on his innocence, confident he'd eventually be exonerated. Left with no other options, Keith managed to adjust to his new life behind bars, and for the first few weeks, managed to scrape by, fumbling around in his new routine, adapting to the strict atmosphere and loud conditions. Although in the beginning it was a frightening experience, Keith gradually became accustomed to it. Like many prisoners, Keith spent his days waiting for visits from family, who supported him through the most challenging times in his early days as an inmate. They came visit me when I was in jail and then while I was in prison. Because, see, they're from Greensboro, North Carolina. I was in Virginia. You know, so there's hours driving. And at this point, they're in their 60s going on 70s. Keith was infinitely grateful for his family's devotion, especially when so many others considered him guilty. But over time, he could see the wear and tear on his parents' faces increasing with every trip they made to visit him. After a while, the trips became too difficult. In 1991, Keith received the heartbreaking news. His mother had been rushed to the hospital, sadly passing away. Then, in 1995, another crushing blow came when Keith's brother sent him news their ailing father had also died. His world was crumbling before his eyes. Not only had Keith been robbed years of freedom for a crime he didn't commit, his parents were now gone, and the chance to say goodbye to them had also been stolen. The unfairness of it all was beyond comprehensible. But Keith refused to give in to despair, even when life was at its absolute bleakest point. He pressed on through the pain, determined to keep living however he could. What are you supposed to do? They've already beat me twice. Am I going to continue holding out hope that something will transpire? I said, okay, well, maybe it's the coward's way out or whatever it is. I said, okay, here's what I have to work with. How can I make this work for me? And that's what I did. As the years in captivity passed by, Keith's motivation for pushing on was knowing he was innocent against all opinions. Despite everyone in prison claiming their innocence, here was a man who actually was innocent, but incredibly humble about the fact, only bringing it up when it felt appropriate. Several of his inmate friends actually believed him, sympathizing with his plight, but after two trials, Keith lost the strength to hope for a miracle. Then, in 2007, just as Keith seemed to relinquish all faith, he heard about something he never knew existed, the Innocence Project. While sitting with fellow inmates, the suggestion came up to write to the organization that works to exonerate wrongfully convicted prisoners. The inmate came to me and said, he told me, he said, your case is so screwed up. He said, you need to write to these people. So I said, okay. What harm could it do? I cannot lose. You know, it would be another letter that, you know, I write to somebody and not get a reply. You know, I did not know that the Innocence Project existed or any place like that existed. And there's probably others like me that are in there that don't know it either. The Innocence Project had exonerated countless men and women, and Keith discovered he was far from being alone in his dilemma. Astonishingly, their waitlist was extensive due to the staggering amount of people looking for their help, 
so long that it was seven years before Keith finally received a letter back from them in 2014. They wrote back says, you know, we're kind of interested in you. Uh, would you be interested in us representing you? And they give, you know, the whole thing. They tell, you know, that we might find something you don't like. We go run the DNA and we won't prepare you. If it comes back that your DNA, then, you know, you've done wasted our time. Right. I signed and sent it to them. Not only did the organization take on his case, they moved him up to high priority due to its nature. That's when Keith learned, as he'd always suspected, the use of forensic dentistry had become a highly unreliable art form over the years. The Innocence Project tracked down evidence from his case that had been filed away in a storage facility. Keith also discovered he hadn't been the only wrongfully imprisoned person as a result of bite mark evidence. There had been over two dozen other people imprisoned as a result of the dubious practice. Back when Keith had first been incarcerated, DNA evidence hadn't yet been developed. A representative from the Innocence Project informed Keith they would now call for much more concrete evidence. He was cautioned that because his case and any leftover evidence was so old, there might be a chance it wouldn't be viable anymore. But they were still determined to try. They had to take samples of my DNA while I was in prison because they wanted to test it against the evidence. Even though the state of Virginia already had my DNA. Because you get convicted, they take your DNA and put it in the database. Two anxious years followed as Keith waited patiently. Finally, on January 8, 2016, Keith was called into the prison counselor's office for a phone call. The first of the evidence results had come back, and Keith's DNA had been excluded. For the first time in a very long time, Keith allowed himself to feel optimistic again. And then it comes back, you know, they're all excited and stuff. My DNA had been excluded, but they said, you know, hold on, relax. Don't get carried away. We're going to see if we can run it through the system and see if we get a hit. Because this would be good because otherwise it's not going to be a straight shot because they could say, well, you were there. You know, that's how Levine, this jackass odontologist, that's how he explained off to all his friends the chatter amongst the colleagues was that I was the one that did the biting. Someone else did the rape. And see, there was never two people mentioned at all. But see, that's how he justifies that he got the He helped convict Ted Bundy, okay? The Volkswagen he drove, Ted Bundy, was better evidence than the bite mark. And there's millions of Volkswagens after time. You see what I'm saying? Oh, okay. He did it. Well, he's guilty because everybody else says he's guilty. Well, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. I say he's guilty too. I'm an expert. Pay me. I'm going back home. You know? Don't get me started. Keith's new lawyers petitioned for writ of innocence, again protesting the sentence handed down to a man who now appeared to be innocent. Meanwhile, in March of 2016, another call came through, this time with mind-blowing new discoveries. A cold hit had been found from the DNA collected from the sexual assault kit. Upon further examination of old evidence, not only did it exclude Keith from the crime scene, but also produced a genetic sample of the real perpetrator, Jerry L. Crotty, a former shipmate of Keith's on the Carl Vinson a man Keith had never met. With a crew of over 1,300 men inhabiting several levels of the ship, it was entirely possible for sailors never to cross paths. Jerry was the real attacker, but somehow managed to avoid having his teeth checked and had simply shipped out when the time came to leave, escaping detection entirely. His records revealed he'd been serving time for abduction. Unfortunately, he couldn't be brought to trial because he had died of natural causes in prison back in 2006. Keith felt immense sympathy for Teresa and the loss of any true justice she might have received, but also knew they were both aware authorities had imprisoned the wrong man. The monster she thought had been put behind bars wasn't actually the monster. 
I can't get in the mind of a woman that's ever been raped. I can't say their mentality or how they feel. But going through that trial, that poor woman was so scared. To this day, she probably still worries about sounds outside her house. And for 33 years later, for her to find out that, oh, yes, this guy could have came back and raped your baby and raped you again. You know he killed your husband. To realize I rested when I shouldn't have been rested. And so did the people of the city of Newport News because they thought the monster was put away. Even though he was AWOL, he wasn't in Newport News, and now we know why. And he was out committing crime somewhere else. Now we know why. How is she supposed to handle it? The guy's died in prison, and all they can figure out so far is kidnapping and abduction. So what happened between here and there? I'm talking about the crime that I supposedly committed and when he got locked up. What else can we do that the cops aren't looking for that somebody else may be in prison? Once the DNA sample was discovered, things changed rapidly, cementing Keith's innocence. April 6, 2016, saw Virginia Attorney General Mark R. Herring make the announcement that in light of new evidence and lingering court files, a tragic mistake had been made. A request was then sent to the Supreme Court to free Keith. In a process that usually takes weeks or even months, the Supreme Court approved Keith's immediate release. Just 24 hours after Mark Herring addressed the case in a public statement. In this case, the Commonwealth got it wrong. An initial round of testing on biological evidence collected from the victim's perk kit and cigarette butts recovered at the scene eliminated Harward as a contributor of the biological material tested. For Mr. Harwood, those are years we can't give him back. But what we can do as a commonwealth is recognize that when we get it wrong, that we say so, and that we act as quickly as we can to try to get his release. Initially, Keith felt confused after he was ordered into the prison's medical ward, where he was finally informed he was a free man. His lawyers scrambled to meet Keith at prison. As he walked out to face the crowd of reporters, Keith wore a blue button-down long-sleeve dress shirt and an oversized pair of jeans held up by suspenders. Well, my attorney's going to speak first, and then if I if I don't pass out or wet myself, I may have a few things to say. <laughs> this is this is all new to me. I have a face for radio. My name is Olga Axelrod. I'm with the Innocence Project. Uh, the Innocence Project, along with the law firm of Skadden Arps in D.C., represented Mr. Harward. Um, for the last two years. Today, Keith Harward has walked out of prison a free man after 33 years incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. This is what you want our justice system to be about, is these people, because they, they go for the truth. What, what hurts most is the fact that my parents aren't here for them. It killed them. It devastated them. They knew and I'll never get that back. I couldn't go to their funeral. And somebody needs to pay for this. The poor people that got victimized over and over and over again, the, the, the family of the man that got murdered and the woman that got raped, to have the criminals in Newport News sell them a bill of goods to make them think everything's going to be all right and try to force them, especially in the case of the rape victim, try to force her into identifying me. She couldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. They tried their best. And, and, and I appreciate the Attorney General and the Governor and the Parole Board and all those people doing what they did. But those criminals, the ones that are still alive, uh, the light is on them and they can't run. That's why Mr. Levine, one of the odontologists, he won't answer any interviews and stuff because his ego won't let him. And that's what it was all about, ego. You know, you know what you know, and can't nobody tell you no different. But if you're wrong, you're not going to admit it in most cases. They should stand up and apologize, but they're not going to do it. Following his release, Keith joined his brother Sonny back home, where he met dozens of new family members for the first time, all showing an overwhelming surge of love and support. Keith had finally returned home. The new world he'd stepped out into felt alien to him compared to the one he'd left behind. A lot had changed in the three-plus decades Keith had spent behind bars. 
As compensation for the years he lost, Keith was awarded a settlement of $1.5 million. But no amount of money could fix the harm that had been done to Keith and his family. Keith felt the payment was just another way to avoid admitting the system was broken and for odontologists like Levine to evade responsibility for putting innocent people's lives on the line. You know what? I wonder if I can get Levine's email or his phone number so I can text him and ask him, how does he feel about trying to have me murdered? What is the statute of limitations for murder by odontology? Although Keith was exonerated and released, the Innocence Project's work was far from over. More investigations still needed to be done, and some of their discoveries were chilling. The crime lab who ran the analysis of the fluids from the crime scene had falsely testified Keith couldn't be eliminated as a suspect, despite bench notes stating the exact opposite. Not only that, those notes hadn't been disclosed to Keith's attorney. Other crucial pieces of evidence his lawyer never saw included Keith's blood type, which would have automatically excluded him. There was also mention that key trial witnesses had been hypnotized, which even back then was regarded as unreliable evidence and almost certainly would have had Keith's case thrown out. The hidden information had deprived him of his constitutional right to a fair trial. This knowledge further compounded the sickening nature of his imprisonment and the rush detectives seemed to be in to convict whoever they could. Despite the years of misery Keith endured, he remains optimistic and now spends his days doing whatever his heart desires, committed to spend his final years living life to its fullest. In the years to come, Keith plans to travel across the US in his RV with his new partner, Mary. While still haunted by the way he was treated back in Newport News, Keith refuses to let his experience overcome him. I'm not going to waste my time. At the end of the day, what are you going to get? If you're going to sit around and just keep feeling bad for yourself because something bad happened, like it does to everyone sooner or later, then you're wasting time having, you know, having fun or whatever or doing the right thing. So. That's just the way I do. You know, I want to. I want to have fun. Do it. Do everything I can within most legal limits of the law and that kind of thing. And the heck up with the rest of it. You know, I ain't got time. I don't worry about who's the president. You know, I don't care about what this person's doing and things like that for the most part because I ain't got time to worry about. It, you know, that's me using a split second worrying about somebody that I care less about. So why even go there? You know, that's that's kind of how I did prison time too. After all he's been through, no one would fault Keith if he decided to drive off into the sunset and never look back. Instead, he's decided to use his unfortunate situation to help others, urging lawmakers to stop the erroneous and flawed practice. Bill, I went to try to get put through in Virginia, and it scared them, is the fact that people who have been convicted behind Flawed science, now known as flawed or questionable science, give them a chance back in court. See, I, I had no more chances back in court. I was done. I was through. I couldn't appeal. I couldn't do anything. The only thing I could have filed would have been a writ of habeas, and that would have been no good because we didn't know the evidence that we do now, you see. There was nothing else I could do legally to get out of prison because forensic odontology is accepted as a form of identification, bite mark identification. So the bill I went to do was to help people that are in prison that got convicted behind some type of flawed evidence to get a chance to get back in court. Keith is one of the lucky ones who regained his freedom, but many in his position aren't so fortunate. In 2016, a staggering 166 inmates were exonerated of crimes throughout the United States, with some cases dating all the way back to 1964. The National Registry of Exonerations was created to keep track of all the wrongfully incarcerated people and is filled with countless stories just like Keith's, where false evidence and testimonies 
mistaken identity and conspiracies sent innocent people to prison. Keith knows life on the outside will always be a struggle and depends on his loved ones to be patient with him after all he's endured. People around me get upset because you tell me that the store is closing at 9 o'clock, okay? And I'm thinking, well, I've been by there. It's been open at 11. You know, let me go over at 9.30 and see if it's open. You're going to be pissed because I question what you said. But because what I've been through, I can't take things as I see them. You know, I will never be free. I've been freed. I'm no longer incarcerated. But how can you take 30 years of your life and squish them down into two or three minutes? You know, I'm a convict. Anybody's ever done time as a convict, whether you did it or not, you've been in that society. I was with convicts. I'm a convict. I do have issues. The trust issue bothers Mary. I have to have plans. Because, see, I lived a regimental life for 33 years. I got up every day of my life at 5.30 every morning. There's no sleeping in late. There's no calling in sick. Every day for 33 years. I have to have some kind of structure in my life. I plan things. And sometimes she wants to be spontaneous. Well, let's just go. I say, man, I can't do it. I got to know where I'm going, where I'm going to be, what time. You know, it's that's because I lived that structure for 33 years. As Teresa looked at a photo of the man who murdered her husband and brutally assaulted her, she said, I've never seen a picture of him. After a long pause, she took a sigh and said, It's scary. It doesn't look anything like the guy they put behind bars. And it's not fair. It's really not. Deep down inside, I was burning. I was looking for a lesson to be learning. A ray of hope or something to believe in. I couldn't find it. We would like to give a huge thank you to Keith Harward for helping us put together this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Keith's case, it was featured in the Netflix series, The Innocence Files, Season 1, Episode 3. We would also like to thank The Innocence Project. If you'd like to learn more about them or give a donation to help support their very important work, go to innocenceproject.org. We're also proud supporters. You can find links in the episode notes. And now I would like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Tony G, Robin G, Madeline S, Max D, Linda C, Annette Mate P, Petty Toots, Cheryl, Lori, and Kathy D. And finally, I'd like to introduce you to the podcast, Scene of the Crime. 
In Season 1 of Scene of the Crime, we explored the tragic 2017 double murder of Abigail Williams and Liberty German in Delphi, Indiana. Now, Season 2 is upon us and we are digging into another double murder. But this time around, the victims and circumstances couldn't be more different. Roger Atkinson and Rose Burkert were brutally murdered in their hotel room at the Amana Holiday Inn in Williamsburg, Iowa in September of 1980, and a killer wielding a heavy-bladed weapon in room 260, most likely a hatchet, would ensure that Roger and Rose didn't leave the hotel alive. Join us starting October 14th of 2020 as we kick off Season 2 of Scene of the Crime. Search for and subscribe to Scene of the Crime right now so you don't miss a single moment. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E madness. I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause I'm not prepared to run.